0: Welcome back to Behind the Tofu.
1: A vegan podcast that brings you behind the tofu, exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism.
0: I'm Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done.
1: I'm Seth, and you can find me on Twitter at Bolton Bombers.
0: All right, guys, today we have two guests. We have Victoria and Darren. You guys, say hi.
2: Hi.
0: hi. I'm so <laughs> excited to have you guys. I'm excited. Um, so, Victoria is an animal liberation activist who engages in grassroots campaigning, mentoring, online activism, and education from Detroit, Michigan. She also does work as an illustrator and designer. She is a co-owner of Your Vegan Gal Pals, who works to do grassroots activism in Detroit and Orlando. You can check out Your Vegan Gal Pals on Etsy from the link on their Twitter, at you are vegan gal pals. You can check her out on Twitter at DNG.
1: Darren, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always get nervous. I'm so sorry. Um I was just gonna do my traditional introduction. Okay. <clears throat> Hi guys, my name's Darren. I'm <laughs> my name's Darren. I am near the water people born for the Spanish people.
1: Darren is also a graduate student researching the wildfires in the Coconino National Forest and their effects on the environmental health and the ecological processes. He is also a small business owner and the co-host of Talk Climate Change to Me. He is an animal and indigenous rights activist who engages in online activism, educational outreach and crowdfunding for communities in need. You can check him out on Twitter at Darren Ocean Sun.
0: Um, Vicky, do you want to give us your uh, indigenous background? I know we didn't ask you that before this episode.
3: Oh, yeah, cool. So I'm Ojibwe, also known as Chippewa, and my tribe is from Wisconsin.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I'm so sorry for not asking you that before this episode.
3: <laughs> it's cool. I mean, I got to say it myself.
0: Uh, Vicki, I know we talked about the Liberation Challenge before. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done the Liberation Challenge, Darren, but I wanted to ask you if you could talk about the impact of Liberation Challenge on your
3: familial and
0: general social relationships.
3: Yeah, it's actually the Liberation Pledge, oh, so I'm it's, like, sorry. a commitment that you take um, by, like, signing a pledge. It's basically where you refuse to sit where animals are being eaten. Um, it doesn't say explicitly, like, also animal products, but I've definitely taken it that step further. And it's definitely one of my favorite forms of activism because, like, to be quite honest, it's very comfortable for me because I never have to be faced with somebody else's victims. I feel like after I took the liberation pledge my family actually had their first plant-based Christmas which was something I didn't think ever would ever happen and um, I've been vegan for like eight years and then that time they'd never even considered something like that and after I took the liberation pledge vegan Christmas so like that was pretty cool I also feel like it really helped put things into perspective for my friends and family that this isn't just like some little thing that Victoria does that like doesn't apply to anybody else. I think it really helped them like understand how serious it was to me. And I've had like really awesome productive conversations with my family and friends who aren't vegan yet about veganism since taking the pledge. And I took the pledge, I wanna say like last September. So, and in that time, my little brother actually went vegan since then. So that's
2: really awesome.
1: Have there been any challenges with the Liberation Pledge? Because when I've seen it discussed on Twitter and social media, there is generally not a full agreement on people's stance on it. And there is generally a lot of backlash to avoiding non-vegans entirely when it comes to the idea of food-related activism and creating those kind of discussions.
3: Yeah, I think people think that when you take the Liberation Pledge, that means that you just like cut everybody off. When really, it's sort of just like... Everybody has the expectation when they're hanging out with me that if we're eating together or we're enjoying a meal of like any sort, that we're eating plant-based. So it's not that I refuse to eat with people who aren't vegan yet. It's just that if you're going to eat with me, you're going to eat a plant-based meal. And I personally don't think that's a lot to ask of the people that I know because when it comes down to it, it's just like one meal and if I go to like, I haven't done this, but like a wedding and they weren't having a plant-based menu like entirely, I would just leave when it came time for them to eat and then come back afterwards.
1: I think that's a really good explanation of it because there definitely is that misconception, like you said, about people cutting off others entirely. And while what you're saying, you know, it makes a good point about how you don't expect all of your friends and family to go plant-based immediately. But the fact that, anyone can have at least a plant-based meal with you once or twice or whenever they hang out. And you know, if you spend more time with them, then sure, you're definitely going to have that positive influence.
3: Yeah. And people that um, wouldn't try plant-based food normally, I've definitely gotten them to try plant-based food now because, you know, the expectation is set. like, if we're going to enjoy food together, it will be plant-based.
1: So this is a question to both of you. And um, so a, well, Vicky, you already answered this, but how long have you been vegan? And do you want to talk about your journey going vegan? Any ups and downs and how things went?
2: Well, Who goes first? <laughs> do you want me to go first or do you want me to go first? You can go first,
0: yeah, Aaron.
1: Okay, I've been
2: vegan probably for two and a half months. It's really, really recently. Um, I haven't eaten meat since I was like 16 or 17 though. So, and I had tried to go vegan in the past. So it was kind of like, off and on. Um, I was vegan for about a year in 2016 and then 2017 it was just really difficult because I hadn't really figured out how to be able to eat vegan um, because I was working from like 7 a.m. to like 3 and then I had classes from 3 to like 6 and then the days that I had class during the day I worked at night so it was like really hard for me to to figure out how to eat at work because it was not very vegan friendly, but now I am, and like my partner's not vegan, but when he's here, cause he lives in another state, but when he comes here, he only eats plant-based the entire weekend. Cause like, you know, I'm really plant-based. It's only been two and a half months, but I don't, pl- I plan on it for like the rest of my life. Oh, and then you said the challenges, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you sort of answered that already as well, given uh, the, when your previous experience with trying out veganism and plant-based eating, how uh, that was difficult at work.
2: Okay, so see, so, yeah, and then also, it was mainly because I didn't really know of like all the foods that I could eat. Like I was just, I didn't, hadn't done like all the research, like, oh, I can eat this and this or how to make food. Cause I wasn't really the best cook at the time. Um, but now I'm a really good cook. I cook for everybody, but I feel like that was another big thing for me.
0: Um, Vicky, do you want to talk to us about you? How, of course you already answered how long you've been vegan, but do you want to talk about your journey going vegan? Like where you vegan overnight? Did you kind of make your way there slowly? How'd it go for you?
3: So, I guess, um, I was actually a vegetarian for, like, the majority of my life. I went vegetarian in, like, the fourth grade. But when I went vegetarian, it wasn't because of, like, ethics or the environment or, like, anything like that. I went vegetarian just because I wanted to have, like, a quirky personality. Like, oh, Victoria, she's a vegetarian. (laughs) And then once I was 15, I kind of was like, mm, this is kind of stupid. So I was like a full-blown carnist for like an entire year and then I had a friend who was vegan <laughs> and I kind of turned into like an anti-vegan like I would post um like she would post videos of like animal cruelty and because I was like so edgy and funny I'd be like "Ooh, bacon like I love bacon. Um, so I was like that for a while and then one of my friends sent me the Gary Rowski best speech you'll ever hear And I watched it with the intentions of, like, clowning on it because I thought it was going to be really stupid. Spoiler alert, I cried. (laughs) And I've been vegan for about eight years now. And I did go vegan. Me and my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, we both went vegan overnight, essentially. There was definitely, like you know, everybody makes mistakes when they first start. So I wasn't like a whole activist at that point by any means. But um, yeah, we went vegan overnight. We've been vegan for eight years. I think that the challenges for us when we first went vegan was less about like um, food and it was more about like the social challenges. So when we went vegan, we really expected our friends and family to be like happy for us. We thought it was going to be like good news and we weren't even a little bit expecting like the backlash we got from our family members. And then as we started to like educate ourselves, we felt like it was our duty to like tell everybody we knew everything we were learning like as soon as possible. And we thought that everyone would like go vegan like right away because like for us, we made that connection like immediately. When you know our parents and like our grandparents and our brothers and sisters didn't immediately go vegan, that was like a really big shock for us. And it kind of like led us away from our family for a while. Because I felt like we were going through, like, this evolution and, like, who we were. They were not supportive of that. They've come around, obviously, now because, like, it's been eight years. (laughs) But, like, the challenges were definitely social for me, personally.
0: Yeah, no, I I had the same experience where I assumed that everything was going to be great from the get-go. But it took definitely two years for my family to finally have options for me at home. Or uh, even going to Thanksgiving instead of continuing to write to make options for me. Um, We just don't have Thanksgiving anymore. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) it's really interesting that, uh, you know, that other people
3: have that experience
0: because I'm sure it's happened to just basically every vegan, right? When you go to a family. I think that um,
3: I, and I think it was your first episode of your podcast. You were talking about how, when you first went vegan, like all you were eating was like beans and rice. And like, I felt that because (laughs) when we went vegan, it was definitely, the most financially unstable period in our life so like we were literally living off like a hundred dollars a week and that was like total so our food budget was literally like two dollars a day so we were eating a lot of beans and rice
0: i'm telling you i i'm still eating a lot of beans and rice i'm a lost student (laughs)
3: rice and um yellow onions mine's
0: red onions red onions are my
3: queen
2: I hate onions. I oh my god, I cannot. Oh no! Telling like, them making them pot, it's like no.
3: It's like the base so of every so meal, meal. What do you put in the pan?
2: I use a lot of spices. I just don't use onions. Like I, I will not garlic eat.
0: and onion. You gotta do garlic and onion. Sweat it down, man.
2: Yeah. I got, I if you're doing that.
0: a soup, you gotta do garlic, onions, celery, and and carrots, man. But like it's can't. the start of
3: every meal. <laughs> every
2: meal. Cooked onions feel so slimy to me that I'm just like, oh, like I can't. It's <laughs> like a texture thing, and then the tasting I don't like. I think it's mainly because, like, my grandma, when she would cook when I was younger, she would put hella onions in everything. And, like, I just used to hate the crunchiness and then the taste. And so, like, now I'm just like, nope, I can't have them. But I've eaten stuff that does have onions in it that, like, you can't tell. So, like, if it's that kind of stuff, I'll eat it, but, like, I can't cook with it because I obviously I don't know how, but, yeah. But right now, I'm, like, I'm in a really financially unstable spot, so I ate a lot of beans and rice, so I don't really Karen, the
0: anti-onion, the anti, <laughs> anti-onion king, um, that's, your new, that's your new name on Twitter, there you go.
2: Yeah, I'm about to change it right now. I'll make it even longer.
3: <laughs> we just got over the beans and toast thing. Last week it was nutritional yeast. Next is it gonna be onions. Fighting
0: <laughs> I, over onions. I
1: feel like I feel like you're not gonna have a lot of people agreeing with you on the anti-onion train.
0: No, no, I don't think so.
2: <laughs> I will make a roll call and I'll tell everyone that it's anti-onion to send up. This um,
0: week is anti-onion.
2: Yes. National Anti-Onion Week. I'm claiming it now. It's
1: official. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So to get back on track a little bit, <laughs> the next thing we want to touch upon is, could you guys give a, a brief synopsis of your cultural background and how does veganism interact with your current um, and historical cultural ideals?
2: As far as I go, I'm Navajo um, and Muscular Apache, but I didn't grow up with it. I was really disconnected because my grandma was adopted. Um, and so like right now I'm still working towards everything. Um, my friends, all of my friends are Navajo except for like two of them. Um, and so it, that's been helping a lot. Um, basically from what I know, we have a lot of vegan foods um, like mush in the mornings, like blue corn mush. Some people eat it at night, but I eat it. In the mornings. It's kind of like porridge, but it's made out of blue corn. Meal. Um, <clears throat> there's also like a lot of foods that I can make vegan, like Navajo tacos or like Indian tacos. Um, I make those vegan. Like I don't use, if I use like meat, it's like the guardian thing or like I'll use um, Beyonce ground meat. I just try to sub stuff out, but um, a lot of our traditional foods are like heavy meat based, um, but it's like sheep because one of our cultural things is like butchering sheep, which I don't like associate myself with like i got invited to w- one of those ceremonies i was like no, no no i'm not gonna go like i can't um but that's a difficult thing for me especially because my boyfriend he's navajo too um and so like a lot of the traditional foods that he's wanted to cook we can't because he doesn't know how to like cook it without me and so like i feel like that's a really big challenge for me and also just like trying to navigate the world as like a native vegan because like some of the things that i will say will come off problematic to like the native community community but like i don't need mean it to be and then like i kind of end up having to like defend myself with that but then if i do then i have some vegans that like come after me because I'm defending my community. And then it's just kind of like difficult, like back and forth. <clears throat> so like right now I'm just still trying to figure out how to like navigate being native and vegan.
0: There's a really good question about that later that we're going to ask you, where you can kind of grow on that a little bit more. So I'm excited to talk about that. Vicki, do you want to give us your um, synopsis and talk about how, it, how veganism interacts with your cultural, current, and historical ideals?
3: Yeah, so I feel like, um... My story is similar to Darren's in that this was very disconnected from my culture when I was younger. I didn't even find out um, about my dad's side of the family. I didn't even know that I was Indigenous until I was 12 years old. So, learning about my culture in those couple of years, I was a vegetarian then. I haven't really had a lot of experience with like cultural foods and things. But the thing that always really drew me to my culture was the overall respect for the planet and like respect for other people and respect for animals was always like, I back then I definitely used to consider myself like an animal lover. It's hard to explain because it's almost like, I felt like this that I never felt in my entire life once I started to learn about my culture, it was like getting a hug from like a family member that I'd never met before. Um, Just because I was raised with my mom, who is white, and her parents were Christians. And I never felt welcome in that community. And once I started to learn about like spirituality aspect of my culture, it was like, like I said, like a warm hug from a family member that I never met. And I think that I carry that now into my my just overall respect for animals and like all living creatures on the planet and like they're like respecting their existence so like that's my biggest pull away from my culture i'm still learning about my culture which is kind of hard to do (laughs) as an adult to like learn about your culture because you still have like this imposter feeling but yeah i feel like being an indigenous vegan has like it gives me like this perspective that i think is like super unique because (laughs) because um you know, it's kind of, like, in this, like, movement of, like, animal rights and, like, environmentalist. there's, like, all these people who are white, <laughs> so it's kind of, like, you, you're kind of feeling like an imposter, imposter, but, like, deep down, it's, like, these are, like, my ideals, like, this is, like, my culture, you know, so, yeah.
2: <laughs> wow,
0: I smiled so hard listening to that. I, that was so beautiful. I'm sorry. Go on, Darren. I know you're talking.
2: Oh, no, no. I was just saying, like, a lot of the things you said, like, I can re- relate to, like, hella, especially with, like, the, our culture, like, being really um, respectful. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, my dad's side of the family, like, they're Spaniard, and I've never really felt accepted with them, especially because, like, my dad's side of the family is, like, hella, hella, hella light-skinned. Like, my sister is super pale with, like, green eyes. Like, if you saw us, you wouldn't think we're related. Um, and so, like, that side of my family was very difficult as far as, like, me being Native goes. So like, I, I feel that a lot. I agree with you like on everything, it was so cool. I, I felt like I was listening to myself. It was just, wow.
1: <laughs> so my, my takeaway from that, when you're talking about how animal rights and uh, environmental movements tend to be pretty white, I'm realizing that when uh, talking to you guys about this, it's sort of like, okay, so when, when your culture was very respectful of animals and the environment at its roots, and we, as white people, were not very respectful when we were colonizing and and such. I guess sort of like these movements are sort of like trying to undo our mistakes. Does that make sense?
0: It's just like, I think, back to what you're saying, Seth, I want to lead this on to them. But remember, we were talking about how veganism is ideological imperialism, right? White veganism is on other cultures we we were referring to ahimsa and referring to everything that was happening with hindu culture but it's also happened with indigenous culture it seems like where we're taking ideas white veganism takes ideas from other cultures and decides that it belongs to them and that they can police it
3: yeah i mean i i feel like i have like conflicting opinions when it comes to like white veganism i feel like the association between like um veganism and like being white is like harmful and in a way that it like erases like vegans of color because I feel like when I said there's a lot of white people I mean like visibility wise I didn't mean like literally because there's so many like vegans of color it's just that the white people are who's like shown to us right I met in person for the first time I met a family they were four brothers in Chicago indigenous vegans and like that was that was like so like crazy to me because I'd never met an indigenous vegan in person before and it just goes to show that like just because you're not seeing them like online doesn't mean that they're not like in the street fighting for animal rights.
2: I feel I only know maybe I know one other native who's vegan and she's from my tribe too and then I follow I think five black vegans but I like agree as far as like the visibility goes it's like majority white And I feel like that's kind of hard because then you have a lot of natives who will just consider like the vegan movement just like a white thing. And then as far as like all the problematic things within like white veganism, they kind of project onto you, um, which gets really difficult because I feel like a lot of the times I have to defend myself as being vegan and I have to just like reassure my friends that I'm like, it's two different things. Like there's the problematic veganism and then there's like, not the problematic veganism if that makes like any sense and then like the other thing too is uh, I try to like really embody like the respectfulness of my culture from what I've been able to learn um, because it's the same thing I do experience imposter syndrome and it's like really uncomfortable because then there's sometimes that I'm like Why? I don't think I should do this because I didn't grow up this way but like luckily my friends kind of helped me move past that so I feel like it goes back to, like, me saying how, like, it's difficult to navigate being native and veganism because, or native and vegan, because you have to defend yourself so much.
3: Yeah, I feel like that's definitely a key component of, like, being vegan in 2020 is defending yourself, Yeah, (laughs) honestly, yeah.
2: It's so difficult, and, like, when you guys were talking about, like, your families, like, making vegan meals and stuff, I only go back home, like, maybe once a year, and, like, and usually, well, randomly, but, and then... When, if they're going to have dinner, I have to cook, because nobody will cook anything. Um, And then what tends to happen is, like, last Christmas was the first Christmas I went home in five years. And it was literally only because the day before Christmas Eve, I was flying in from Nepal. So it was just cheaper to fly from New York there than to fly straight to Phoenix. And, like, I had to cook for everyone, because nobody knew how to do it. And then this year, it's the same thing again. But, like, yeah, So I'm going off on a tangent now, but, Yeah.
0: (laughs) I was gonna say that we guys were talking about, uh, right, with there being like different types and different levels of veganism. I wanted to segue that into our next question, which is how do we, especially me, uh, right, and Seth, as white vegans, um, how do we ex- exercise respect to indigenous cultures while continuing while continuing our animal activism? And what are some examples of vegan arguments or topics that are insensitive to
1: indigenous cultures? And to add on to that, if you can think of such arguments which are insensitive, what are, I guess, things to say instead?
2: So there was actually something that literally just happened like maybe 20 minutes ago. Um, two of my friends, like, we have a group chat and they like text me and like were saying that one of the things I retweeted and said is like, really problematic because it was, I think that like aging news where they were using like bugs to make cakes in replace of milk or something, I don't know. And I was just like, yeah, that's so dumb. Like, why do they do that? But then my friends, they were like, well, we use red beetle or something. And then there's like other cultures who use bugs within their foods. And then I was like, oh, I didn't think about this. But I think when it comes to veganism, at least in my my perspective, um, it comes down to the way we treat animals in a western context because of like factory farms and the way that they're raised and the way that they're treated um, and all of that nature but when you look at at least with I can't speak for everybody so I'm just going to speak about my tribe when you look at the way we raise sheep they're raised in a very very respectful way they like roam everywhere like they're just they live a really good life but then you know they get butchered and which I don't like but that's just kind of a part of our culture. And I think like at the root of veganism and like the animal rights movements it or movement, it stems from colonialism um, because of, you know, the fact that like how meat is raised and how there's no respect for anything and different things of that nature. And I think as far as like engaging in those conversations, I feel like it just comes down to being like more open minded about things. I feel like that's just the main thing that I see on Twitter is a lot of people are just very insensitive and they don't take into account how the like the western meat industry goes and like how native cultures raise their own meat and stuff like that like it's two different things you know like i wish we didn't eat meat but there's nothing that i can personally like do to like change that because that's something that is like a historical thing and i think that's kind of what it comes down to one of the an example that i can kind of think of is my one of my friends she's coast Salish, i think if i said that incorrectly i'm so sorry she was talking about how they can't fish traditionally anymore because of the way that they have been um like mass fishing and stuff and so i think it was salmon and like a bunch of other stuff that they're doing so they can't even do that um and she was talking to me about how with their culture everything's like respectful they only will take what they need and they won't take anything extra but like in the western western context i guess um they'll just like take so much of it out of the oceans and like they don't even do it with respect they just kind of pull it out and then shove it in a thing and then they kill them and then you know ship them or like if you look at the way lobster like they just put it in boiling water like indigenous cultures from the ones that i've experienced and like seen because of my friends they don't do things like that um so i think when it comes down to conversations around veganism and indigenous cultures. It's just really being open-minded and kind of just trying to understand where they're coming from and just know that being a part of like U.S. society is is very different than being part of like the native community. I can't say that I'm like super, super native, you know, because obviously I grew disconnected and I'm still really trying to like reconnect and, you know, and everything. Um, But that's one thing that I have noticed is that it's like two separate things, which has kind of led me into just really be more open minded than I was because I realized that I was really cut off from a lot of things.
1: So one example I want to add on to that about being open minded is there was a thread that I believe that I, I, most of y'all have seen that was going around on Twitter the other day, where someone from uh, in northern Canada was posting pictures of the food prices in their area for fruits, vegetables, and anything that wasn't an animal product. And it was really eye-opening to make me understand how expensive it would be to be vegan in such an area. And they did a good job of explaining, okay, we get this nutrient from this animal and, you know, to the best of their ability, they're raised and they're, they're killed humanely, which is drastically different from what you're saying about, you know, Western culture and how we do things in the States. And like I said in my, in my tweet about it, I'm very fortunate to live in New York where fruits and vegetables are very cheap and I can live vegan pretty easily. But I, I, on the same note, I have to be aware that not everyone in the world and not everyone, you know, in, in every area can do that.
2: One of the things that I wanna add, um, kind of what you were talking about, like the food prices and stuff. Um, So like the Navajo Nation, we sit in what is known as Arizona, New Mexico and Utah. So like in the Four Corners region, but like all of what's considered Northeastern Arizona is the Navajo Nation. Um, And so we're the size of West Virginia, but we only have like a few grocery stores. Like I know it's not more than like 15 and it's like a huge area. And there's so many people that are like without electricity, without running water, um and some people only have access to gas stations to get food um and like as you've seen in gas stations they're not there's not a lot of like vegan options that you can use and stuff and so like that's one thing that i always try to talk about on twitter because everybody wants to push everyone to be vegan but it's not really accessible to a lot of people like as you saw in that thread and like what i'm saying right now and i think that's one thing that we do have to like consider
3: when it comes to like breaking down like cultural practices and like cultural norms it's really important to like have productive conversations with people and not talk over them which I feel like leads to like people coming off or just like flat out being insensitive is because instead of like having a meaningful conversation people tend to like speak over indigenous people which is for my issue wise I also feel like culture can't dictate morality So it's like, personally, I, I don't associate with the parts of my culture that I would find like cruel to animals, but I feel like it's such like a, a touchy, a touchy topic, which is why it's important for open communication with people instead of just like yelling at them. Um, Also with the thread he brought up on Twitter, I saw that and it, it like brought about like a really emotional reaction for me because I saw all of these people seeing this thread Of like grossly overpriced fresh food and their reaction was like see the vegans debunked veganism debunked not everyone can be vegan instead of being like why is canada starving indigenous people because when i say that i'm a liberationist i mean that like so wholeheartedly and that spans over so many different things. So not only do I want to liberate animals, I also want to liberate humans. I want to liberate indigenous people. The fact that we live in 2020 where food should be a human right, a basic necessity should be provided to everybody, the fact that it's not is a problem. And I don't remember the spec like right off my head, but um, I think it's like 87% of um countries with like starving children uh food is grown that's fed to food animals that's fed to people in western countries instead of the people there and like that's a problem like I also want to liberate those people as well so yeah I feel like too often people use the the whole veganism is anti-indigenous thing as a way to absolve themselves from guilt which I have like (sighs) a big problem with I feel like that in itself is anti-Indigenous, to be like, "Mm, I heard that the people in the Arctic Circle can't afford food, so me living in LA getting Starbucks two times a day, uh, I'm not gonna do either. And I think that that is just like super problematic. Um, It's really making this horrible, horrible situation for Indigenous people about yourself which I wish that we could have, like, those educational discussions with people and it not come, like, people make it about themselves instead of making it about Canada starving Indigenous people.
0: Nikki, I don't think you can talk about me smiling. <laughs> <laughs> I have loved everything you've said so far. You too, Darren. Honestly, like, I, I'm, I'm so... This is, this is great. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just having a good time.
2: <laughs> so am I, this is really fun. One of the things that I've been learning about is like intersectional veganism, which I think is like really interesting because I barely came across can I make
0: a Can I make a comment about that uh, real yeah. quick? EA corrected me on this and, I, and last episode and I kind of wanted to just kind of pave it forward, right? Because uh, you said intersectional veganism. EA was saying that intersectionality as a term is a term that is used to describe the intersectionality between black women, their their race and and their gender. And it's a term that has been a sociological phenomenon for a very long time. And so when you say, right, when you say intersectionality, you're kind of taking that term away from, um, from black feminism. And instead we should use terms like collective liberation, which is something that Victoria used earlier as a word. I think you did. So collective liberation instead of intersectionality. And I'm so sorry to correct you. I know, I feel, it feels so weird like me saying that. I know that I'm a white person, but I I'm was gonna, corrected last week, so I'm gonna pay it forward.
2: No, 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 I really appreciate that because I, I, whenever people, I like when people call me out on something or correct me because that's the only way that I can grow as a person and like expand my knowledge. So I literally had no idea about that. So thank you for correcting me. So now I know to only use collective liberation, right? That's what you said.
0: Well, you can use other terms, just not using, not intersectionality, which I know a lot of people use, and I, I personally liked the term up until I was told that, because I didn't think about the fact that it could be cultural ratio of a different term that helps Black women find their, you know, inter- their identity, so I didn't realize that.
3: Yeah, I didn't, I had no idea of that either, so that's actually, like, super helpful. I, d- I, uh... I haven't really been using intersectionalism, like, in my own vocabulary. I prefer, like, collective liberation. I'm definitely going to have to put my own research on that.
2: And see, I had never even heard of collective liberation before, so now i got to like, do my own research on that. So I really like this because I'm learning a lot.
1: So for for example, there's also a book by uh David Nagibelo uh called Total Liberation, The Power and Promise of Animal Rights and the Radical Earth Movement, which is sort of an intersection of anarchism and animal rights. But, you know, the term is not really brand new as we're calling it here, but sort of like like you said, what Vicky was saying, you know, we want liberation for Everyone, everything on this earth. So one of the things that I've learned throughout going vegan and being vegan is that people are very disconnected to the food system these days, especially how you know you're going to the grocery store, majority of the time of the food you don't know where it comes from. And you know, especially when it comes to the animal, because people don't even see, you know, flesh or meat as an actual animal. And, you know, a lot of times produce comes in shipped from all across the country or all across the world. And people aren't really aware of that as I think they should be. While the emissions, when it comes to the environmental aspect, the transport is not the biggest, I guess, issue with it. I feel like being connected with your food is definitely a indigenous uh, cultural value that has been very lost over uh, colonization throughout the years. And that's really unfortunate because from what I've seen, in areas today where they grow their own food, even if they're not indigenous, they appreciate food a lot more. And I think I want to see a world where we shift towards that again, because it'll definitely be better for the people, the planet and our health. And as indigenous people or people with related to that background, do you think that a that is possible? And B, how do you think we can get there?
3: My hope for the future is animal liberation. And I hope with that comes like um, redistributing the land that is used for animal liberation. Again, here I am not knowing the percentages off my head, but I think it's like 45% of just the United States is used for- um,
0: uh, The number those- has gone up since then. It's, like a ridic- it's more than 50% of the US land. Wow. It's
1: ridiculous. 50% is specifically used for cattle grazing.
3: Yeah, just for cattle grazing. Wow, oh,
0: yeah.
1: that's incredible. Cattle grazing. By
3: incredible is... I mean really big and bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, there's, like, know, there's
0: like there's like 30 percent more land given to no it's it's more than 30 percent uh it's it's like a ridiculous amount more land given to cattle grazing than there has been to the indigenous people who had the land first. So there's more cows living on U.S. soil than there are indigenous people.
2: See that's um one of the biggest things that I've, I actually was learning about this like I think two weeks ago in one of my classes is that like in Montana and like up in that area like wolf populations are kept at a minimum because of the because they want to raise cattle that's why bison populations are kept are kept really low because they want the land to be used for cattle and I think it's really interesting because you also have to like when you look at cattle they are displaced animals um, because they're not in the traditional territories. They're used over here. And that's one of the things that I learned from, I, can't, it, it's Dr. Jessica Hernandez, I believe. She, I think she's a PhD student, or she just got her PhD in Washington. Don't remember, but I, I know that it's Dr. Tuta Nature on Twitter. Um, but yeah, I learned this about her because she was talking about how we should approach these type of things as viewing them as displaced. And one of the as far as being disconnected from food sources, I completely agree. And one of the ways that I, I showed my sister was, I don't know if you guys ever saw that Netflix movie, it's like called Okja, I think that's what it's called. So like, it's this movie about what's called a super pig, right? So it's this girl in Asia, I don't remember where, but she has this like really cute little pig looking thing. It's, it looks like it's a mixture of like an elephant and like a hippo and a pig, like it's weird. But it's really cute. So she like raises it, and it's like her best friend, or whatever. And then this like white lady comes in, and they take it because they sent babies all over the world to see where they would grow better. And then it basically ends up where she's the super pig is literally about to be killed in a factory farm. And now she's leaving. These two pigs like they throw their babies under the fence. So she can take them so like she opens her mouth and puts them in her mouth and then she takes them. And when I first saw that I cried because I didn't know what I was watching and it was just a new thing. And that's how I showed like my sister and that was a, She was able to really understand where her food comes from and like now she knows. Um, but I do think the fact that people are so disconnected from our food sources is probably one of the reasons why they don't understand the animal rights movement. and don't wanna go vegan because they don't understand what's happening. They're just used to being like, oh, let me go to the store, grab this package of meat and then go. They don't actually know what's happening.
3: Yeah, I feel like the disconnection from where people get their food is like so mind blowing to me. And I always tell people like, go to a slaughterhouse, it will radicalize you. I've been outside of so many filthy, disgusting slaughterhouses. I've spent hours at them and it will radicalize you, and I think that- Talk (sighs) about the fucking smell. The smell is outstanding. I still haven't gotten it out of my coat.
0: I'm telling you, every time I, I smelled it and I literally vomited immediately, it was so horrible.
3: Yeah.
2: When I lived in New Mexico, we used to have to drive to El Paso for everything, which is like half an hour from Las Cruces. And so between there, there's dairy farms. So when you're driving, you only smell like the manure or whatever, and every time we used to drive, I used to get really, really sad. And then when we moved to El Paso I was living there and it that's like right on the state border um and so like all of my friends are in New Mexico so I used to drive out that way and I found this Tyson chicken farm that was like hidden like you would not know unless you took like the back roads and I just happened to be there and I saw it and like me and my friend drove by and that's when I did that's when I decided to go be a vegetarian because I was just like I can't like this is so sad and then I actually went with a fr- the same friend we sit outside one of the dairy farms with, like a really big banner so people could see it when they're like driving on the freeway like to stop eating meat I haven't seen the smell and I'm too scared to do anything because I have like bipolar disorder and like when I get really depressed I get really depressed so like it's so hard to like participate in these things because then it like messes with me like psychologically but then it also makes me think like imagine like how bad it's messing with slaughterhouse workers psychologically you know what I mean which I also think that talking about slaughterhouse workers is something that really isn't included in these conversations which I kind of think is important too you know
0: we actually are going to have an episode in the future about slaughterhouse workers um I know that Seth and I actually met with somebody who we think we might want to talk to in the future so um, I want to hear that one. Oh we actually recently did sit in, both of us sat in a meeting. I did a QA with the, um, the founder of the Food Empowerment Project, um, which they're in Kuwaiti, California, and they do work with farm workers and slaughterhouse They don't work with slaughterhouse workers, but they work with farm workers and migrant workers in uh, California and help them get school supplies for their kids and uh, make sure that they have adequate food sources and stuff like that. So we will be talking about that in the future um Victoria you were saying something and I interrupted you and I said the smell so you're talking about when you go to a slaughterhouse it radicalizes you do you want to continue on that or do you have anything else to say
3: the smell is definitely the first thing that you notice at a slaughterhouse that is correct the first thing you notice is the smell and I think that the second thing is just like the feeling of like helplessness um I recently went to a vigil at a pig slaughterhouse, and we don't have one of those in my state, so it was my first time ever going. The feeling of, like, helplessness is so overpowering that you can't feel anything else. It's almost, like, numb, because I'm looking all of these individuals in the face, and I know that within the next three hours, they're all going to be gone, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that that, more than anything else, radicalized me to, like, an extreme, extreme point, because it's like, I really hate it when people say that um, animals are voiceless because they have a voice and us as animal rights activists, it is our job to like amplify their voices. And I think that if people who, I know a lot of, everyone's against animal cruelty, almost everybody, right? And I think that if people really took the time to like go to these places, they would realize the injustices that they're participating in. Um, There's also ag gag laws. So in a lot of states, it's illegal to even record inside of a slaughterhouse. And I feel like that really just like proves it's own point. Like, what do they have to hide? You know, if they're running a good business with ethical guidelines, why is it illegal to film inside of a slaughterhouse?
0: Before you finish the, your statement about ag-gag laws, I want to go ahead and all the listeners, I want to send you forward to ALDF's website if you want to learn more about ag-gag laws. Um, that's Animal Legal Defense Fund. They have a large uh, section of their website dedicated to um, information about
3: ag-gag laws and what they're
0: trying to do to repeal those laws in different states.
3: Yeah, and then another thing about people being so disconnected from their food, I recently had the pleasure of going viral for the first time on the internet. I came up with the idea to host a vigil inside of a grocery store, technically disruption, where we dress. It was very theatrical. The point was to put on a show. Uh, we dressed in all black and we went into the grocery store with signs shaped like gravestones with like powerful messages on them and we laid down flowers on the dead bodies in the grocery store and (laughs) to me i was like oh like this is like a cute little idea you know we're having a little vigil and also it's like it's eye-catching so like we'll get people's attention and people will be able to see somebody looking at animals in a different way that they've always been taught i wasn't expecting to be called out by the brazilian government for being radical and militant and aggressive and having millions of people telling me that I'm aggressive. And I'm just like, I laid down a flower in a grocery store, bud. (laughs) Like, Uh, how is that what's seen as like aggressive and militant, but like slitting an animal's throat is just, that's, that's humane. But laying down a flower, that's where we draw the line, aggressive.
2: You got
1: called out by the Brazilian government
3: yeah, it's a whole
0: different level oh. of
1: being viral. I knew <laughs> that went viral because I saw people sharing it around and they were tagging you in it and such. But wow, I didn't realize it went that far.
2: Yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I. but honestly what I've been considering is like I want to burn cedar for them. That's like kind of a prayer thing and I want to do that because I just I don't have any vegan friends here in Phoenix. Like I literally don't know except for that one girl, but she's like my Twitter friend and we talk all the time, but I've never met her because of COVID, but like I want to do radical things like that. I just don't know anybody here. Oh my gosh, I want to do that. I want to do that. can send out work.
3: the files to people for free if you would like to do. The media has called it a steak wake, so like we're taking it, but like if you want to do a steak wake, we have the materials for you.
2: Oh, send please you send it to that?
3: me. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to I want to do that here like I really especially because there's like hella conservatives here and cuz there are like a bunch of old people and I'm not an ageist I'm just saying there's <laughs> old people, there's not, it's cuz like that's what Phoenix is known for like that's why it's so expensive here now because there's old people that move here and buy houses and they live here specifically from Illinois there's tons of people from there moving here but I feel like it would be really good to do that here because of the fact that that's like a huge population here like I live in an area known as Awatuki. it's like a district of Phoenix, but the nickname is all-white-tuki, like it's a bunch of like retirees here, um, and they're really conservative, like I left work the other day, and there was like two corners at this intersection with like huge Trump sh- Trump signs and people like waving flags, and I was just like, I really hate you guys, but I couldn't say anything because I was literally just driving by, but I, I really want to do that now, so I would appreciate you to send me those resources.
1: I want to go back to one thing you were talking about when it comes to the pig slaughterhouse. I have not been to one, but I have seen videos of slaughterhouses as many other vegans have. And even through just a video, one of the sounds that I will never forget and I hope I don't have to hear, although I may end up doing so, is the screams of the pigs being gassed to death. That is one of the most horrifying things that I have heard slash seen throughout all of my viewing of animal cruelty and i could not imagine what that would be like in person
3: um it's awful it's really bad i have heard that sound in person and i think that that's why i've really started to push for people to stop saying that animals are voiceless because like you know we hear them screaming from the slaughterhouses
0: so i guess the last question i wanted to ask how do we work to promote the importance of abstaining from restricting indigenous self-determination under the veil of animal rights so there's a few different parts to this question. I know it sounds very dense, but essentially indigenous self-determination, meaning letting indigenous people define what their culture is and letting indigenous people define what their veganism is if you're an indigenous person who is vegan, instead of trying to speak over them, which we've kind of talked about this, but also including what you were saying about, about land earlier, when it comes to the foraging and hunting rights for indigenous people on, on federal land, and private property that's that that sort of self-determination as well so the, the self-determination of your own lands but also self-determination of your own culture things like that
3: um i think that we need to obviously respect indigenous people and their right to practice their own culture but i also think that it's important that we don't lose sight of the victims which is animals when it comes to like slaughtering and killing animals Um, I think that it's not a fair comparison to make as in comparing, comparing, um, traditional indigenous hunting practices to like, um, animal agriculture. But I think that, like I said, total liberationist, I would like for killing animals out of necessity to not be the reality for anybody. So like, that is my hope. And I think that with that hope, um, people need to also consider the fact that, um, while veganism is highly accessible to the majority of people, um, it's not accessible to everybody. And my hope with the animal liberation movement is to make plant-based food accessible to everybody. So killing out of necessity will no longer be a reality.
2: I, I agree with that. You kind of took everything out of you. you There's like the words taken out of my mouth. So I don't really have a lot to say because of that. But I do agree. I, I, I want to see veganism be more accessible and I do also want to as far as like I go because I'm trying to switch to a more like traditional diet um, as far as like our traditional foods go but because I'm doing so I kind of want to show how we can make our traditional foods vegan Um, because then if we do or when veganism becomes more accessible it's kind of already the path kind of already there that like this is how you can eat our traditional foods, but vegan. like Especially with like fry bread, because it's normally made like out of lard. Um, I make like it, well, I suck at making it, but when I do make it good, I usually, I use coconut oil, which works really, really well. Like my boyfriend, when he makes fry bread here, he'll use vegetable oil. And that's like one little thing that you can do to like um, make your food, like I guess, cruelty free. Because if you're gonna put meat on it, then it's not. But that's one. Small step you can take, you know what I mean? And there's like, I don't know all of our traditional foods yet, but I think that's the biggest thing for me. Um, especially because like now I made like a separate Instagram account for like My workout videos and like my food and stuff. So that's what I kind of want to post more of now is like my diet and the things that I'm eating specifically traditional foods like that that way other natives or other Navajos can see like, oh, we can do that. Because I was inspired by this one girl. I'll talk really fast because I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, she's, um, she's Navajo and she's vegan too. And she has pop-up shops with food in Farmington, New Mexico. Um, and when I came across her, I got so excited because it was another Navajo vegan. So now I know three. Th- there's three of us, including me, but I know two. <laughs> yeah.
3: I think that is such a beautiful form of activism. I love it so much. Please make Indigenous food cookbook vegan please. And thank you. Everyone <laughs> would love it, including me. I'd give you my money. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's, that's with me and being like, all forms of activism are so important. Like, especially like making those cultural foods plant-based is just like incredible to me. And I love it. Please make a
2: cookbook. Oh, I, might, I might just do that. Actually, I didn't really think about that.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. I have so enjoyed this episode. Seth, I know you have too. This has been so much fun. Thank you guys for being such wonderful guests. And I know we didn't get to everything that we wanted to talk about, but uh, this was an incredible episode and it was so much better than, I I was so nervous about it and I know you guys were too. So I'm glad it turned out so good. Um, Do you guys have anything you want to promote?
2: Oh, I do have like, I have a um, beadwork shop. Well, now it's like just like a jewelry shop. Um, It's my Instagram is oceansun.bear. You can also follow me on Twitter where I sell my work is DarrenOceanSun. Um, and if you follow my Instagram page, I post updates on when I'm going to drop jewelry um, and I donate a, percent- a percentage of my proceeds to the Navajo Water Project so that way we, um, we can increase water access and electricity. Awesome. Vicki?
3: Couple things. Um, if you want to get some really cool, funky, fresh vegan designs, you can get my work at Your Vegan Gal Pals. It's UR Vegan Gal Pals and that's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Etsy, all the same. Also, I want to give a special shout out to George's Place Sanctuary in Chicago. Recently, I was a part of a 24-hour traveling vigil in Chicago, and we rescued six chickens from slaughterhouses. They would have been slaughtered that day, and instead, they're going to live out the rest of their lives on a sanctuary. And if you want to send them some cash, a little coin to help those sweet little babies on their journey, um, that'd be awesome. That's George's Place Sanctuary in Illinois.
2: I might just make a percentage of my proceeds go to them too. That I'll just have to learn more about that.
3: <laughs> that would be
0: incredible. Seth, do you have anything you want to say?
1: I think the idea of having uh, various indigenous foods in a vegan cookbook sounds really awesome. and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that happen. And I want to thank you guys again for coming on. And I'm looking forward to sharing what y'all have had to say with everyone and our listeners.
0: All right. Uh, my name is Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at generallydone.
1: And I'm Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolts and Bombers.
0: For all the sources from this episode, any uh, links that we found that are important, anything that they said that you should go to, all of our resources will be on behindthetofu.com sources, and you can find us there. Um, thank you for listening. Have a nice day.